Welcome to the Who's Left podcast, a show about Indiana politics, history, and culture from the unapologetic perspective of the Hoosier left. My name is Scott Aaron Rogers, and I'm recording in Bloomington. This episode is dropping on Friday, November 3rd. Election Day is this coming Tuesday. If you have not voted early, be sure you vote between now and Election Day. Make a plan, bring a neighbor, or two, or ten. Today I have a wide-ranging discussion with Hopi Stosberg, candidate for Bloomington City Council, District 3, keeping it local today. Before I get to the interview, a reminder, we are on Substack at scottaaronrogers.substack.com. If you appreciate what I do here, please subscribe there and consider a paid subscription. Really appreciate it. We're also on Facebook, uh, on the Who's Left Facebook page. You can find me personally at scottrodge 78 I'm also on Twitter if you dare go there. With that, here is my interview with Hobie Stosberg. Hobie Stosberg, thank you for joining the Who's Left podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you taking the time. So, uh, first of all, for our listeners, I want to be fair. You know, we're putting everything out there, full transparency. Uh, Hopi coached my daughter in youth basketball, like, what, five years ago now? I don't even know. I was trying to think about that, and I couldn't remember anymore. I coached youth basketball for, I think, I think t- only two years but it ended up being like four seasons. And then I coached my son too. And they all honestly slide together because that was in a pre-COVID time. And who remembers that? In the before time and the, the long, long ago, right? That's right. It, so yeah, all those teams all kind of slid together. And, I, and uh, so many of the same kids were playing and just on different teams. And so you end up, like I ended up seeing a lot of the same kids for two or three years, but they weren't necessarily on my team all at the same time yeah so what you know i'll tell you what and i and i i didn't like take the opportunity at the time but i really want to thank you for for doing that and you know, coaching you sports and and just volunteering like that and like that kind of stuff is the glue that holds a community together and um well, especially like now after covid like you really realize how important those little community things that bring people together. I guess I should say you're welcome to that. And I appreciate the appreciation. Um, I really, really enjoyed coaching uh, in general. I'll say in general, I did basketball for a couple of years last year. I actually did run club for my son at his elementary school. And I just really enjoy working with kids in that context. And I was a teacher and I enjoyed classroom teaching, but it is more fun to do fun things with kids. And I did a lot of environmental and nature programming in my 20s before I had kids. And those, it's just really fun um, to interact in those ways with kids. So it's, they're, they're just a fun group. And, and you know, they, all they, kids in general. All yes. Groups. And they, you know, they need, they need stuff like the, the, the structure of youth sports and just learning how to take instruction from other adults. And it, it, it 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 really is. It's it's community glue, and and it's so so important. And um, you know, I apologize. It's taken me this long to realize that. 
I don't think that you need to apologize about that. Um, I think that there's a certain category of things that sometimes we take for granted. And then there's also that category of things that like, if we didn't necessarily experience it when we were young, um, you don't necessarily realize how much it could generally be added. And so I played a lot of sports when I was young. I didn't play basketball, which is interesting, but um, I just, I had some coaches that were really, really instrumental in my life in general. And the relationship between a coach and a player is different than between a parent and a child or between a teacher and a student. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, I think it's a really valuable relationship for, for everybody to be able to have and to take that kind of, um, just have that relationship and take that kind of guidance and to be able to communicate with somebody about the, the sport, about physicality, about whatever it is that, that they're doing in that physical arena is just valuable for everybody to be able to think about, I think. Yeah, absolutely true. It really is. So, um, you mentioned, are we still having connection problems? Uh, the audio sounds great. The video's not super great, but that doesn't really matter. I mean, I record it if I ever wanted to like, I don't know, make a TikTok video or something, but I, I have, I think that we're still having connection problem. All right. If you're having a hard time hearing me, yeah, I, I've got a good, uh, connection to you, but, um, are you, are you having a hard time hearing me? I'm definitely having, it's so choppy. Why is this so choppy? Maybe it is that old. All I know is that my signal now says that it's fine since I moved out to the table. And so um, it could be, I could turn off my camera. Is that disruptive to you? Um, if you talk, yeah. oh, like let's, let's see if my turning off my camera helps enough in terms of my system. Sure. Absolutely. Um, am I coming through okay? Now you are, yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, let's uh, let's roll with that then. Um, so you you mentioned that, you know that's like one of the things we we take for granted, and uh, I kind of feel like it's the same way with governance here in Bloomington and Monroe County. Uh, like I've taken good governance for granted in Bloomington. Like we we've got. A, a generally decent, effective city and county government. Um, I've certainly taken that for granted. And looking at the state of democracy nationwide, um, I kind of feel like we've all t- taken that for granted. So um, what what motivated you to throw your hat into the ring here in uh, Bloomington? Uh, that's a really interesting. So that's a really interesting statement. So you kind of, you you made a statement, and then you asked me a question. So I'm going to respond to both of those things sure. in the order that you did it. Uh, yeah, I've never really I've never really thought of us taking government for granted in quite that way. But I think that you're right, and I think it's one of those things that for a long time it felt like government was working pretty well, and when it feels like things are working pretty well, we tend to not see what's actually making them work. And we see what's actually making them work when those things are suddenly no longer working very well anymore. And, and uh, it takes a lot of intentionality to pay attention to stuff when it is still working well and to pay attention to the concept of how do we keep on making sure it, it continues to work well and that we just kind of carry on having those positive services. And it's the kind of thing, I mean, we could, 
we could have that understanding right now with really physical infrastructure if we think about something like water um, or we think about something like sewer and we think about, well, we only notice that there's a problem with the water pipe when the water pipe bursts. But the professionals out there have a plan for making sure that they replace piping and replace fitting and, you know, have those sort of maintenance replacements before there's a flood, like before there's really a problem. And I think that sometimes in general, we we as humans don't necessarily do that very well. It's like we have that saying, if if it ain't broke, don't fix it without recognizing that sometimes things need maintenance so that they don't end up breaking. And sometimes we can't wait till something's broken before we start looking at the problems um, and fixing it. So that's a really philosophical, uh, challenging thing, I think, to have people do is make sure that um, there's some level of awareness to uh, fix things before they're broken, because then you have to figure out what you think might break or what you think might be a problem in the future. And that can be something that's really difficult to communicate, especially to people for whom everything is working just fine right now. So that's my first response uh, to what you said. In terms of what made me throw my hat in the ring, in some ways, you could say it falls in that same category. I some First of all, somebody asked me to run for city council. They we're kind of looking at it as a whole and going, Hopi, we think that you would be a good fit in this position. We think that you would do well in this position. And I responded back to them. Um, you're crazy. <laughs> that is, I am not a politician. That is, that is nowhere near what I was, what I was thinking about. Um, but once that person pointed it out, I started looking at it and I started realizing, you know, in the current city council, there are no parents of school-aged children. Um, and in the current city council, there's not really anybody with a real eye on youth and young people. So even when, like, Allison Chopra was, uh, had school-aged kids when she was on council, and I think that, and even, even younger, her kids were pretty little. Um, and I think that she gave some good voice in terms of how late some of those meetings went and how unfriendly that is to anybody with small children and anybody having to parent and some of that unpredictability. And I think that she um, was able to uh, bring that to some awareness, but she also um, was a parent, but not necessarily, uh, I mean, she was a lawyer, so it's a different category when you're looking at somebody like me who was a high school teacher who uh, has always had kind of a real focus on youth and youth programming. Um, and there, there was that gap on council. There's nobody currently has that focus or has had that focus in their life. And then the other gap that I saw was that there is nobody on the current council and all of the current incoming folks um, I'm not counting the District 3 race because it's the only one that's contested, but all the other folks, they all have some kind of IU relationship. Mm -hmm. They're alums. They work at IU. Their spouses work at IU. And I have no IU relationship. Um, I did not move to Bloomington for IU. <laughs> I have uh, never worked there. My spouse has never worked there. And it feels sometimes like Bloomington's a little bit of a company town and IU is the company and I don't have the kind of allegiance to IU that an alum has to IU. And I, I think that, or that somebody who's actively working for IU might have for IU. Um, and I think because of that, it puts me in a sort of unique position. And I think that 
it's, you know, in terms of highlighting voices, I think that that's a voice that maybe should be in the mix. Somebody who doesn't have the kind of uh, relationship to IU that so many people in this town do have. Yeah, you know, that's something I, I definitely uh, haven't thought about. Um, I'm an IU alum. Um, my wife is a lifetime Bloomington resident. Grew up here. Um, do you know if you if you if you wind back oh forty some years on now? If you look at like uh, Breaking Away, right? The whole movie is sort of based on the 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 the, the town versus gown relations, right? As it were. Um, how do you think? the Bloomington IU relationship is currently? I I think it's a really interesting relationship because it, it's super codependent, right? Bloomington would not be Bloomington without IU. And there are so many pieces of Bloomington that I love and I love them because we have this huge university here, right? And that is something that really makes Bloomington Bloomington. Um, but IU is also really exempt from a lot of things because they are a state university. They're tax exempt, for example. Um, there are different and I'm just like learning all of this stuff. Right. Like this is a category of thing that like I learned something new about this every week in terms of um, how ordinances uh, like how IU might be exempt from different ordinances uh, because of their status, um, because they're a state university and how that all works. So it's really codependent at the same time that um, Bloomington doesn't, I mean, IU is huge, right? Like nobody can tell IU what to do. IU is going to do what it thinks is best. Um, and it, it's almost like a, a city within a city in some ways, but we are connected in all of these really key ways. You know that there's a lot of uh, of inner workings and it's, of course, valuable to make sure that those relationships are maintained and that you have this um, cordial and cooperative uh working system. I mean, if you think about about Bloomington and Monroe County, you know, we have Bloomington government, we have Monroe County government. Well, we also have to have IU government in there, too, because they're just as big um, and they're just as powerful. And so it really you really have to work together on it. And and one of the one of the things, you know, whenever you're working with different um, different groups like that, like everybody's coming to the table with their own goals. Right. And their own uh, hopes for outcomes and that kind of thing. And um, that's a piece where I can come to the table without mixing goals because I don't have that IU relationship back there. I don't have to say like, oh, well, I, I need to make sure of this, that, or the other thing in terms of my relationship with IU because I don't have a relationship with IU like that. Um, and that, it just makes it unique. It just makes it, when I was looking at at city council as a whole and the concept of this position, I was like, this is this is a unique position because there are so many people in Bloomington who have some sort of relationship with IU. And a lot of them aren't, you know, they're alum. Maybe they went for four years and that was it. Um, or maybe they moved here uh, and never left. Maybe they teach there. Maybe they're, you know, a, a big wig in a department. Um, and all of those folks have have some allegiance or some dependence on IU, and I just I don't have it 
in that same kind of way. Is there uh, an area in particular where you think the uh, relationship between the university and the community could improve? Like, is there is there something that IU does that really grinds your gears as a local? No. <laughs> no. I, I, think, I think that there are things systematically that, that make me really frustrated as a local, and housing prices are one of those things that, you know, IU as a market is a huge market on housing. Um, the, like, I mean, you can say that IU students do that, but IU also has housing units. And so if you look at how much the IU housing units cost IU students and then how much some of um, the non-IU housing costs, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, we think housing prices are really high, but IU housing prices are really high too. And so then that, you know, that, that transforms the whole market in ways that I think just make it really, really hard. I mean, everybody knows the housing market right now in Bloomington is just really, really hard. Um, and affordability is an issue. And simply having vacant spaces in it is an issue. And there's been all of this new building, which some people are really not a fan of all of these new buildings. But I I mean, they're designed to hopefully free up some some spaces in other areas because there are people there there are lots of people who work in bloomington but don't live in bloomington because they can't afford to live here because there's not enough housing and the housing that's here is too expensive so that is something that that iu is it it makes it more complicated it makes our housing more complicated um that's just is what it is like it's not a bad thing it's not a good thing it's just a thing right yeah actually you walked into one of one of my questions was uh, about the, the housing affordability crisis here at uh, Bloomington. And um, what do we do about it? Is it just simply a matter of we need more units or is there something else going on? I am definitely not the person who you should talk to in terms of this like expert person who's going to be able to like adequately analyze the housing market exactly right. Um, that is not... That is not who I am. I am in the stage of trying to figure all of those things out and trying to really understand um, what has happened and then what hopefully will happen in the future. Because this isn't, I mean, this issue is not simply unique to Bloomington. It's not like this is just a Bloomington thing, right? I'm from Vermont originally, and Vermont has a 2% vacancy statewide, right? Like, Housing in Vermont is also incredibly expensive and incredibly rare. So having this problem in Bloomington is not like only a Bloomington thing. Um, it is definitely at least partly a problem of not having vacancies. And maybe part of it is not having or even if there are vacancies, it's not having the right kinds of vacancies. So there is definitely uh I think that there is a lack of ownership options um, for empty nesters and young adults, right? So it's that in-between housing where your, you know, your kids have moved out and you want to step down from something that's 2,000 square feet or 2,500 square feet to something that's 1,200 square feet. And where can you find that? You want to find a house to age in place, right? Which might mean not having stairs, like having everything on one level, where are those in Bloomington? There just are not very many of them. You know, you are a single person or maybe a couple. Maybe you have one kid. Maybe you have no kids. Um, who knows what your future is going to hold in that way? But you want something small, but you're interested in that equity piece. 
where can you buy something? There's not very many options. Um, and I, there's certainly some hope that some of these big apartments, these big builds are going to pull some folks out of where they might be, you know, s- groups of, of students renting single family homes and neighborhoods of single family homes and might pull some of those students out of those um, that type of facility and into these apartment complexes, which are built for students. I, as a parent, I mean, I've got a 15 year old. and I'm looking at some of these through the eyes of sending my, you know, 19, 20 year old to college. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that looks pretty good, actually. Right. It's not that expensive. It comes furnished. All the utilities are included. Like, that's not bad. That feels safe to me in terms of my kid living on their own. And how is that going to look? It feel it feels good. It feels safer than, say, if my kid was renting a house with two other people and they're having to figure out utility companies and they're having to mow the lawn and they're having to do all of that stuff that comes with um renting a home. So, and I think that that is working to some degree. Uh, From an anecdotal standpoint, I have seen houses for rent in neighborhoods that are not usually vacant right now, and they are still vacant. And so I'm going to hope that some of the folks that usually rent those places, well, they're maybe in one of the complexes right now. And if they remain vacant, if um, those uh, uh, property managers have a hard time renting those, maybe they would consider selling them. Maybe they would be bought by an owner-occupant. Maybe they would consider lowering the rent on those places. Um, who knows what's going to happen? But I think the next couple of years, there's going to be some shifts uh, in terms of where people are living and then what's available. And Hopefully, there's going to be some changes in in the status quo and what has been happening. Yeah, there's generally a lot of just like at additional units on the market, sort of percolating through the whole city and freeing up other units, and hopefully, at, at least keeping rent stable and keeping it from increasing exponentially all the time, as it seems to do. Um, a lot of these new units are going up in. Uh, your district, which I forgot to ask about. Will you describe the uh, the the third district of uh, Bloomington City Council and what area you're looking to represent here? Sure, absolutely. So District 3 um, is the east and north side of the city. And of course, we just redistricted last year. And I think at this point, because we've been through the primary, people have figured out maybe how things are now. But essentially, District 3 is bordered on the south by third street and on the east by the city limit right out by brewster's ice cream uh you follow third street along um past the bypass to um i'm not going to be able to list all my street names without a map because that's the type of person i am um so that means I'm getting out my map right now. Um, <laughs> so it's along Third Street to, I believe, Union. It's just past mm-hmm. the Green Acres neighborhood. Okay. To right. the edge, edge of campus. campus. Yeah. Yep. Edge of campus. And then it goes north uh, through campus. There's a little bit of winding until it gets to 10th Street. And then on, at 10th Street, it goes west again until I think it's Fee. And then fee, it goes north to 17th. And then at 17th, it goes west again all the way to Walnut. Okay. And then Walnut, it goes 
north to the bypass and then it goes around the bypass and then it goes north at Dunn. And then I have that whole like corner um, of Bloomington. So it includes Lake Griffey. It includes um, Meadowood Retirement Community. Um, the new hospital. It includes the new hospital. It includes most of the dorms are in District 6, but I think it includes, I think it's Foster, um, if I'm remembering the right name. Oh, And then yeah. it also includes like the fraternities and sororities that are along, um, I think it's called David Baker and then Eagleson. And um, yeah, all of that through there in terms of campus housing. And it includes all of that. Um, it's not campus owned, but it is predominantly college student housing west of the stadium. Yeah. All of that housing is included in District 3. Miller Showers Park is technically in District 3. Um, yeah. And then, of course, all the east side neighborhoods, Park Ridge and Park Ridge East and, and Grandview and Eastern Heights and Tamron. And there's a whole slew of uh, multifamily buildings through there of, of all types that are housing um, all kinds of folks. There's a lot of students that live over here because we're relatively close to campus. Uh, but there's also a lot of families in those buildings and there's some lower income focused apartment complexes bell trace is in there so it's a really it's a really interesting district in a lot of ways because it's got a lot of really family focused neighborhoods it's got retirement communities it's got a lot of multi-family housing that is both student focused and then also some that is really family focused and not student focused at all so yeah it's a it's a really interesting mix of people little um, yeah. And yeah, I, I go ahead. No, I just said I think so. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to ask. Um, so your district is the only one contested in the upcoming election, uh, meaning all the other uh, council seats. The Democrat is running unopposed. You have an opponent. Uh, can you tell us about your opponent? <laughs> That's correct. Um, I can't tell you very much about my opponent. Um, his name is Brett Heinisch. He is a Republican. He's in his late 20s. He is a recent graduate from the O'Neill School, I think. Um, I don't really know very much about him. All right. Fair enough. You know what? I mean, I'm going to give you props for, for a couple of things. Number one, I'm saying you don't know very much about him there. But also before you were like, you know what? I don't know about that. And for somebody running for office... Being able to say, I don't know about that is probably the most respectful thing I can I, I can <laughs> imagine right now, because uh, most politicians at the state and national level, for sure, but even some down at the local level, you ask them their opinion on something, they're going to bullshit their way through something, right? Well, yes, and I, I well, first of all, I'm not really a politician, right? And secondly, I'm a teacher. And if I don't want my kids or my students to BS their way through things, then I should show an, a good in, be a good influence and also not BS my way through things. Um, not to say I never do that, but I think that it can just be really powerful to admit that you don't know something. And uh, there's always something that you don't know. And there's always something that other people don't know. And to I just I, I don't have the ego of a politician. I think that's the thing. A lot of politicians have really big egos, right? A lot of people have really big egos. A lot of people in leadership positions end up with really big egos. And 
ego is important to make sure that you're confident in what you're doing, right? But if your ego is so big that you can't admit that either you don't know something or maybe somebody else knows something better than you or that you are still learning something, I mean, I th- I just think that that's problematic. So it, not a politician, Scott. That, that is a line between politician and public servant, right? <laughs> it's It's right there. <laughs> It's it's the I don't know why. It is right there. Yeah, yeah, it is right there. And I actually that that was something that I was that I have said a few times as I've been campaigning is that I've been a public servant for a long time. And so you also asked me, like, what brought you to do this was like, well, I've been a public servant for a long time. This is just an extension of my public service. This is a slight detour. You know, I've been passionate about education for a long time. I'll go ahead and bring that up myself. I got a lot of people asking me in the spring, why am I not running for school board? Like, why am I bothering doing this whole city government thing if I'm really that passionate about education? And um, I just the, the best answer for me, I think, for that is that I think I love the education system. I think that public education is so important. And I think that in a lot of ways, they are not able to, um, they're really bound. They can't change things as much as things need to be changed. Right. They don't have the kind of control. They can't do anything about housing, right? They, um, they take the students that they get and they do amazing things with them. But at the end of the day, they send them home and they have limited resources to help at home. Like whatever's going on in that home that might be posing um, an obstacle or a barrier for that child's success in school, they, they can't help mom or dad find a job. They can't help mom or dad deal with transportation issues. They can't, you know, they, they, schools, that's not a school's job. And I see a lot of those sort of systematic issues that are obstacles to student success that you can't effectively work on those from the school board platform. So um, I can't remember why I started telling that story anymore, but, uh, that's another reason, I guess, why I chose to to take my public service and my public servanthood toward city government as opposed to uh, continuing a more narrow focus on, like, in the field of education specifically. Well, right. And, um, it, like, education doesn't end at the classroom door. And um, that stuff, you know, the, the, a child's at-home circumstances follow them to school right and and it's a more holistic approach to education to understand right yeah yeah the the you know the education continues when you leave and 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 you know your home environment is part of your learning environment yeah and i mean and i'm not dissing anybody's home environment right now but economic situations drive environments like that right like if there's if there's economic stress on the family then that's that's stressful like no harm no foul that's stressful schools schools can't help with that city government can help with that right like by creating economic opportunity by uh having resources for residents to be able to uh make sure that they're able to to support themselves to have 
basics that they need. And I was actually, I was reading this uh, this article recently, I don't know if you saw it, about uh, Department of Ed, or not Department of Ed, Department of Defense schools. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that one. But I don't know if I saw They basically did a study. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, the Department of Defense run schools in various places because, of course, they have all of these military bases all over, which have a bunch of families and have a bunch of kids. And so, of course, the Department of Defense ends up having a bunch of schools. Right. And by and large, by and large, the students in those schools all um, perform exceedingly well. And one of the things that recent articles have highlighted is that one reason why they're performing, they think, exceedingly well is that all of those kids are housing secure. All of those kids are food secure. All of those kids have some element of stability in their lives that that you can't say that about all kids in Bloomington right now. You can't say that about all families in Bloomington because, you know, there are housing insecure families in Bloomington. There are food insecure families in Bloomington. And that, um, I, I wish that I could easily say like, yes, that needs to be fixed, but, uh, it's, it's harder than it sounds to fix, um, to fix that. It's just harder, harder than it sounds. And schools really try hard. There are a lot of amazing programs through schools in terms of uh, making sure kids are fed while they're there, sending um, food home with children. Uh, But that is still it's one of those things that, you know, schools schools do as much as they can, as much as they're able to. But that's not as much as is actually needed to um, to 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 make to make true food security and housing security for families that's actually another thing i um meant to talk about uh you know we we all get the the forms at the beginning of the year you got to fill out at the school for all your kids and one of them is about um homelessness we have children in our school system who are unhoused um and and generally you know bloomington has a large uh unhoused population um what are your ideas for combating the homelessness problem and uh helping these people out that's that's a huge question that um requires a a lot of answer we'll say um there are a lot of different i'll say categories of homelessness you probably know that uh and of course the major goal right now is to make it um uh, short, right? If if you end up being unhoused, you're unhoused for a short period of time, and then you can get rehoused and kind of carry on uh, to make those brief. Um, I can't remember the Beacon slogan right now with brief and non-repeating, and you know you want you want people to get back into housing stability. And I don't, I, I want to emphasize right now that there are a lot of really amazing groups working on the unhoused problem in Bloomington. Um, The Heading Home organization has really done a lot to try regionally to um, address it as the problem as a group. And I think that when it comes to the resources that unhoused populations have, I think, and this is based on conversations I've had with folks at Beacon, that Um, In general, Bloomington has pretty good resources for families who are unhoused, right? Right. They have pretty good resources when it comes to those folks that that 
are unhoused because of some economic disruption. You know, somebody lost a job, then they couldn't pay the rent, and then they were unhoused. And and they can there's interventions where they can get the temporary support that they need and then get rehoused. Um, and similarly with, you know, if there's a fire, if there's, you know, all of those things, I think that Bloomington as a whole uh, city has a lot of organizations that do really well managing those sorts of cases. Where I think the unhoused population gets a little bit unwieldy uh, is that visible population that we see, right? This is why people are having a problem with it because we see the unhoused people, if we just didn't see them, then it wouldn't be a problem, right? And I hope that you hear the sarcasm in my voice. <laughs> I, I think that it's really important that we do see these these folks so that they get humanized and it's not just some story that you hear about that happens in other places. No, it's here too. This happens here. Um, but there is a population, it's very, very challenging to deal with folks who are... Um, uh, um, unhoused for long periods of time who are who are part who are unhoused because uh, they might have issues with mental health they might have drug addiction issues they are chronically unhoused right um, they're in and out they uh, can't seem to manage uh, housing stability even if they have it and that population needs something different. They need a more supportive housing model. They, uh, you know, drugs these days are really bad. Uh, I, I, I once again, like, I mean, I, it's just really bad. Fentanyl is really bad. Um, it is not the way it was 10, 20 years ago. Uh, the uh, addictions are kind of more extreme. Uh, there are some really, like, some of these drugs like actually change the chemical processes of your brain yeah. in, in permanent ways. And that population of folks needs a different kind of support. And that would be the support I think that we just don't have enough of right now in this town is we do not have enough of that high supportive housing. And I'm really excited about the new Beacon Project. I think that that'll be a really, really awesome center. I think that it um, you know, it incorporates like good different stages in terms of a temporary shelter, some supportive housing uh, apartments, some opportunities for uh, uh, folks to kind of move through their system in productive ways to to uh, become more more functional residents again. And I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I think that'll be really important. Um, so, yeah, I feel like there was one other thing that I was, oh, yeah, the other thing that I'm going to mention about about the housing problem, and this is a housing market problem again, right? It goes back to how expensive housing is. And that is that our local area median income is so high that like affordable housing counts as 80% of that area median, median income, but that number is still really high because our AMI is so high. And so what we need is we need housing units that are built for 50% of AMI folks to get in. Because when you, I mean, what you have is you have people that can really afford $500, but they're paying the cheapest rent that they can at $900. And so then those folks that could pay $900, well, they can't get those apartments. So they're also housing stretched because they're having to pay $1,300 and that goes all the way up, right? And so it's, so that's the other place where, where we really need more housing that is super low income housing, right? That's not just 
affordable at 80% of AMI. It is um, low income at 50% of AMI or even lower than that in terms of really being able to meet the needs of of um, some of those chronically unhoused folks and some of those folks who are just really uh, economically challenged. Is that something the private market can even handle or do we need more public housing? I don't think that the private market can necessarily handle that. But, you know, the city is doing this Hopewell initiative and Hopewell is supposed to have like the early plans for Hopewell have some units in there that are some of that 50% of AMI units. And so, no, it it does need to be, um, there needs to be some subsidy happening somewhere. And see, that's the thing though about subsidy. I mean, these folks are like, they're eligible for say section eight subsidized housing, right? Yeah. But there aren't enough, even if you get a voucher, there aren't enough open apartments to find an apartment. <laughs> and so it, it, you know, there are support programs out there. It's not all up to the city of Bloomington to subsidize all of this building. It, it's also up to, you know, figuring out the money that is out there to help this population and then making those um, making those partnerships, you know, those public private partnerships and figuring out some of those monies that are there to help support some of this uh, some of this need. So you mentioned the uh, the Hopewell area, and for those who are listening who are not familiar with um, Bloomington, Hopewell is the new neighborhood uh, to be developed on the site of the old Bloomington Hospital grounds. The hospital has moved out uh, onto the bypass on the northeast side of town, uh, the old hospital area downtown. Uh, wide open now, except for the old administration building and the parking garage. Now, there are plans for developing the area. Um, are those? Scott. Yeah. I, hold on, Scott. You're going to have to start over with that. I'm sorry, I'm because sure. my computer just went offline for a second and then back online again. Sure. Well, I was just describing the Hopewell area for our listeners who may not be familiar with Bloomington. Okay. Um, so do, um, there are plans for developing that area. Uh, number one, are those set or are those still uh, for negotiation? And uh, uh, what would you like to see? Uh, my understanding is that they are they are not set in stone, but there's like drafts basically. Um, and I, I, for the most part, I like the drafts that I've seen. There's a mix of multifamily, um, uh, that really low income, 50% or even less mm. uh, subsidized housing. Um, and then also, excuse me, I think that, I can't remember anymore. There, There's ownership options in there somewhere. And I can't remember if they're single family homes or if they're like condo style builds. And there might be some of each in there. Um, I think when I looked at it, kind of my first thought was, I would like to see a little bit more ownership option and a little less of the big multifamily complex type. But one of those things, I mean, it's really hard because you have to butt up like like housing against climate related initiatives, right? Yeah. Which we haven't talked about at all. But 
of course, you know, a, a single family home on a big lot is not very climate friendly at this point. Right. Right. And that's why, you know, you think about ownership options. It's like I just said condo ownership options, paired homes are just they're just more environmentally friendly. They have a more environmentally friendly footprint right now. And in terms of density, I mean, especially because that area we're talking about is right downtown. Yeah. And it's in some ways it can be a really desirable place to be. And so I don't want to see that designed with these big lots like they have in, in suburbs, right? I mean, I live over in Park Ridge and we have, you know, nice lot sizes and, and I like it and I appreciate that. But this is not the kind of development that I want to see down in Hopewell. I want uh, it to be more of an urban, denser development style feel. Um, but I do, I want to make sure that there are some ownership options down there um, and some uh, some ownership options that uh, kind of meet some of those things that I talked about in the beginning of this interview that could be good for empty nesters, that could be good for um, young you know the the twenty. Yeah, are you um are you familiar with like the the co housing development that they're doing down on South Maxwell um over behind the Montessori school there? Again, full disclosure, I am actually currently working on a crew who's doing some drywall work over at the uh, co housing project down there on South Maxwell. Um. Anyway, full disclosure. But go ahead. Okay. So there's a couple different co-housing projects and there's a couple other like just sort of like interesting out of the box projects going on with housing. Um, so the co-housing down behind Na Maxwell, I don't know very much about it, uh, but I have looked into it some and uh, like co-housing in, in general, like great, like the, that can be a really good use of resources, right? It can be really interesting. It can be really great. Um, the co-housing behind Maxville is uh, private development, essentially, and those uh, co-housing, uh, it's not cheap. Um, those are pretty, uh, uh, the prices on those houses uh, are not necessarily in that affordable realm. So it, it will appeal to a certain element of people, but not necessarily uh, folks that are in need of affordability. There's also another co-housing project that is more focused on affordability, and I'm not actually going to remember the name of it right now, um, but they've been fixing up some older houses uh, in different areas and doing that. And, and they're actually like home sharing as opposed to, I think, the one behind Maxwell. It's more like everybody has their own home, but then they share common spaces and share and stuff is that right yeah essentially it, it, the aim with this co-housing project is is it reduces the, the the costs by like you only own the home you don't own the land that it sits on and it's like the 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 land is okay. in common and then there yeah there's oh wait so with the land trust then yeah yeah so it's a land trust i believe so yes Okay. Yeah. And, but it's not, see, there's another land trust that's also um, working. I think it's where I see, I'm not going to remember the names of any of these things right now because I don't have any notes in front of me. And that's, that's just what happens. Um, there's another land trust that's also working that's specifically working on affordable, making sure that things are affordable with a land trust. So, um, just to talk about land trust for just a second, it is, as Scott said, uh, um, the land is owned by the main group 
And then the home that sits on the land is owned by an individual. And so in a land trust model, uh, in in one of like an affordability kind of land trust model is that the the land might have limits on how much it the the equity in that or or the worth in that could grow. And so that keeps the land at a certain affordability factor. And then it also um, by extension, you can get some equity on the house, but that's like capped and how much um, how much value it would grow every year. And that and that ends up making it all more affordable, potentially. I don't think the project behind Maxwell has that affordability component behind it, but those are really, really nice places. Um, I think that it that it looks really nice, but I'm not sure that it's intended as affordability. But it's certainly one of those areas that, uh, um, like, I think it's climate friendly. Like, that's the kind of thing that's climate friendly, uh, which is which is also an important piece of uh, of progress as we move forward and making sure that we're being uh, that we're just making good use of our land and our property. Yes, absolutely. Um... So speaking of land and property, um, let me ask about the ongoing annexation uh, battle here in Bloomington. Now, uh, I, I guess my understanding is that there are, are still a couple of zones that are due to be annexed. Uh, there were, what, seven or more um, areas around the city that were due to be annexed residents fought the state fought it uh where do things stand right now and uh how do you feel about it i'm also not the best person to uh to chime in about the uh the the legal issues behind annexation right now i actually got a really quick uh annexation for dummies lesson the other night uh because um i'm not a lawyer i'll just once again say that I'm an educator, not a lawyer, which means I ask questions and I don't always expect that I'm going to be the one that's going to answer all the questions. Um, and so to get a real perspective on exactly what's going on in the state of those different zones, I'm, I'm not the one to talk to about that. It is in the courts right now. And there are definitely, um, I'm sure that, I'm sure that, sorry, that was the dog. Uh, I'm sure that, um, you could get some really different and interesting legal analysis about that from the right person and what might actually happen. But as far as I know, all of those regions are still kind of in this never, never land of the court. And one of the problems, of course, was that uh, probably a couple administrations ago, some of that stuff should have been annexed yeah. then and it should have been annexed a little at a time. And, you know, when you suddenly do big things all at one time, it is scary to people. Change is hard. Change is scary. And if you try to do too much of it at once, it ruffles lots of feathers. And I think that that's one of the things that happened, you know, ages ago at this point with this annexation. I mean, years ago with this annexation. And um, I think that we're still... Uh, kind of falling out from this shocking idea of annexing this much. In general, uh, I I have to just come out and say, yeah, I probably generally support the concept of annexation. Certainly, um, you can't. So, like Bloomington is the biggest city in Monroe County, right? And one of the reasons 
why you're in Bloomington as opposed to being in the county has to do with density, essentially, right? It's like how many how many services are there? How many people are there? You know, we don't think about um, the city of Bloomington being a rural place, and we don't think about Monroe County being a heavily populated place. And so as urban as the urban area expands, I think it makes a lot of sense to say, okay, let's consolidate the urban area all together because those are the places where there's lots of people and those are the places then that need more services and need, uh, uh, they just need more services. They need more frequent services. It just, you know, and, and urban areas tend to be set up more to deal with that better than the county or rural area. So in the big picture, I have to say I support annexation. In the little detailed picture of each one of those zones, I I think that, you know, to some degree, like for me, I'm a pretty analytical person, right? So I look at it as a cost-benefit analysis in terms of, you know, from the city and is it worth annexing that area? Um, Are there enough people there to warrant it? I've read some studies that basically were like cities tried to annex too much too soon and it bankrupted them because you have to provide the service to wherever it is that you annex. And if there aren't enough people there, then it's not fiscally responsible to annex that area. So, you know, the uh, the zones that are the donut holes in the middle of the city that literally they are surrounded on all sides by city and yet they are county i find those incredibly problematic because if you live in one of those areas and you have to call police or you have to call fire for some kind of emergency like the response is supposed to come from the county but the county has to drive through city to get there. And that's just, that's not effective in terms of time. If you want, I mean, you want the fastest response from something like that, not the response that is coming from farther away. So there's some pieces of that that is just like, like it makes so much sense to annex this area. And there's other pieces of it that I kind of look at and I go, well, how much does that piece make sense? And that's like getting into some of those weeds and those details that folks what, however many years ago it was, seven, eight years ago, got into all of those details at the time. And I suspect as part of city council, I mean, I, I think that the whole thing is in the courts now. I don't think it's coming back to council. I don't think. Um, I'm, I'm, once again, that's a piece of something that I'm learning the details about as I go. And because those things are waiting on court decisions, it's like, well, if the court says this, then we do this. If the court says this, then there's something else that has to happen. Um, and I'm not at the stage of if thening um, specific annexation stuff. Sure. And I know, again, this is for listeners, one of the things I, uh, I do know about the annexation is that uh, the, the state passed a law essentially targeted at Bloomington to prevent the city from uh, annexing the, the surrounding areas, um, just like the the state has picked on bloomington uh i believe the city council passed like a plastic bag ban a couple years ago that the state house decided that they wanted to squash uh i think we like they didn't actually even pass it they they talked about passing it they didn't pass it they discussed it 
and the state squashed even the concept of it. But yeah, yeah. And and that, you know, what the state did with regard to annexation, the, the courts have already declared that they were not allowed to do that. Yeah, Republicans are always for local control. So, and the locals decide they don't want to be controlled. <laughs> oh, um, so a couple more Bloomington-specific things. Um, I've, I've got instructions from my mother-in-law to actually ask about your feelings on uh, Cascades Park and uh, Mayor Hamilton's plan to uh, close the road going up there and make that pedestrian only? So Cascade Park is really complicated for me. I'll say that right up front. So I... I, you know, you you had a couple caveats in here, Scott. I'll have a couple caveats too, I suppose. I am generally super bike for, bike bike positive, bike friendly, um, also super ped friendly, um, and I think that those alternative modes have been um, underinvested in for a really really long time. And so, what's been happening in the last several years is all of a sudden more investment is going into those areas, and uh, once again, it's like when you do a lot of change at once. It's it does not necessarily go well. Gradual change, I think, goes a lot like it just goes over a lot better. But sometimes you have to make up for lost time, essentially. Right. right? Um, and there's definitely a few problems, I'll say, in general with Cascade Park. Um, kind of not even thinking about the the road closure right now. Uh, so when I first moved to Bloomington and. And this is to some degree anecdotal. So what I'm going to tell you right now is anecdotal. It's kind of like what I think and suspect. And it's one of those things that that I want some actual study done on this, right? Like I, I want to look at this from, from an analytical study data sort of viewpoint and see if my hypotheses are actually mm-hmm. real. Okay. Um so when I first moved to Bloomington nine, 10 years ago, Cascade Park was the park to go. It was the destination park, right? It had an awesome playground. It was just wonderful. And when I go down there now, it is pretty empty, especially relative to how it used to be. And, you know, when I moved to Bloomington, I had a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And I have to think, if I had a two-year-old and a five-year-old right now, again, where would my destination park be? And of course, it would be Switchyard Park, right? Switchyard is really awesome. So I have to go, hmm, why is Cascade Park not being used very much anymore? And, you know, there was a meeting, boy, it was... I'm not going to remember what meeting it was anymore. I don't think it was a council meeting. Um, Might have been a bike ped meeting. I don't remember anymore. Um, But there were a lot of people, maybe it was a council meeting, who were commenting about Cascade Park and the usage and basically talking about how sad they were that when they went down, like there used to be people having picnics and there used to be people doing this and people doing that. And there's just not people down there anymore. Right. And and then I think about that and I go, well, if it's a destination park, then people are going to Cascades and people or people are going to Switchyard and people maybe just aren't utilizing Cascades as much but it is beautiful and it should be utilized, right? And so to me, I look at it as kind of this bigger system issue. And I used to work in parks. I don't know if you knew that. I was an outdoor recreation coordinator for the Parks Department in Richmond, Indiana. And Cascade Park is a really, really wonderful park. And I kind of feel like it needs to be redefined to attract people back to it. 
or attract new people to it in terms of um, really highlighting some of the wonderful things about it. And the question is how exactly to do that and what exactly you want to turn it into. And there's been some new, new, like, infrastructure and construction down there and it looks really really great like it is really really nice down there and i just wonder how much it's being utilized and what what could be done what should be done to get people using the that resource more to get people visiting it more and what kind of visitors do we need so in terms of closing that road um Closing that road really depends on a larger vision for Cascade Park and what you want that larger vision to be and whether then in that larger vision it makes sense to close that road to make it pedestrian bike only or to do something different. And one of the problems is, of course, that Cascade Park is not very pedestrian friendly right now at all. And depending on like how you want to assess that, like because you could say, well, the playground is really hard to walk to, yeah. right? Like it's kind of far for anybody with kids to walk to the playground. But if you think about the edge of where the park starts, it's actually close to a lot of housing, right? It's relatively close to that um, predominantly student housing west of the stadium, right? Mm -hmm. And then across College and Walnut, there's also a bunch of multifamily over there. And now we have that really awesome multi-use path that's still being constructed along 17th Street, which really connects nicely to like the Crestmont neighborhood, the Tri-North area, all of that kind of stuff. And that ends up being really close to uh, the boundary of Cascade Park. So it's really, I mean, it, it really depends on usage. So right now, the way it's being utilized, I think that the speed bumps slow traffic down enough to make it safe enough for cyclists. Um, I think that there's no pedestrian infrastructure at all down from that end, though, for all of those people that I just talked about. And there's not actually space to add a sidewalk in on the side of that road. Like, I, I mean, I don't care how much money you throw at that. Like, let's there's 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 some geographic problems with how the land mass is there, and a sidewalk is not necessarily the best use of space through there. So I don't know if that gave your mother-in-law an answer about how I feel about Cascade Park and the road closure in particular. But I, I in general, I think it's underutilized. I I think that. It's a really, really excellent resource, and I think that it should be kind of reimagined and redefined. And and at that point, you know, and of course, if you look at the main master plan, though, in terms of connectivity with the city, that is a piece of connectivity to North High School. I'm not totally sure that I'm convinced that it's the best piece to North High School, but it is what is currently in yeah. the plan. Um that connection so okay fair enough um perhaps more contentious uh it is being talked about making college and walnut both two-way how do we feel about that i want i want to dial back that conversation a little bit and bring it back to the fact that 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 there is a study going on for that college walnut street corridor there is an assessment happening with that and it's sort of interesting. Like, so this is going to be long. Okay, sorry. I'll, I'll try to go fast. So 
once again, philosophically, you have to go back to the fact that I was a teacher, right? And so philosophically, I have to kind of make the declaration that um, as a teacher, you don't just do the same thing constantly all the time. You are constantly assessing and reassessing and changing your lesson plan and switching things up, right? And I think that systems also need to do that on larger scales. They need to look at the status quo and they have to be open to the fact that uh, maybe what was best 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago is not what is best now. And I think that that we should encourage systems to make those sorts of assessments. And that is what I think is going on with College of Walnut. We're saying, okay, let's make this assessment. This is like a major transportation corridor, right, for our city. And we have to look at that road and go, I mean, what, I think it was 50, 60 years ago that it was converted from two-way traffic to single directional traffic. And everybody at that time apparently had quite a fit about it being changed. Um, And so now here we are having a conversation and going, is this really... um, how we want this corridor to look. Is this really the best way for this corridor to look? And there is not a conclusion at this point about what is the best way for this corridor to look. But if we want transparency in government, we want our government to say, hey, we're looking at this thing. Okay. We haven't made a decision yet. There's not a decision. I'm. Sh- there are tons of opinions, right? There's as many opinions as there are people about how exactly it should look and what exactly you should do. And, uh, but Nobody has made one declarative sort of single plan. Um, And I don't have uh, I don't have a final opinion on it. I think that two way traffic could be really interesting. I think the thing that I definitely do um, that I definitely do feel pretty certain about is that in terms of traffic count, like in terms of how much traffic we have flowing down there having three lanes of traffic going in each direction is way more than we need okay um the traffic counts that the city did like that's what their traffic counts say and if i think about some of the other main roads in bloomington um you know east third street only has two lanes of traffic going in either direction Right. West Third Street also only has two lanes of traffic going in either direction. Um, uh, Third Street, by the time it gets downtown, right, still only has two lanes of traffic going in either direction. That's plenty. Right. Um, On those roads. And I would argue those roads have at least as much traffic, if not more, I think, in terms of those counts than College and Walnut do. So why do we need three lanes of of traffic going in each direction through downtown on College and Walnut. Maybe we did 50 years ago when we didn't have the bypass, but we have the bypass now. So things have changed. Traffic flow has changed. And I think that that can change. Now, does that mean I think that we need to cut it down to one to to two roads that each have two directions on them? Not necessarily. Um, I, I, I try to think about like my own traffic patterns and my own flow and go like, how would that work? Does that make sense? Like, how does that affect parking around Courthouse Square? Is like, does that really make sense? I also have to think of it and going, wow, we're doing this corridor study and it's a really long corridor. It's all the way from Miller Showers Park to like Allen Street or something. Like it goes like farther south than the post office. Like you can't think about that entire corridor as though it's going to have one single answer for 
the entire stretch. It won't. Um, it won't. And so I, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. I'm, I, I'm not sure, I guess you could say, I don't have strong feelings one way or the other. I'm not here at this moment, um, ready to pitch a plan and say, I think this is the best one. And here's why, um, I too have heard the complaints and experienced the problems of delivery trucks downtown. Right. It's a nightmare. And the thing is, like, like we have got to have a better solution for delivery trucks than we currently have. What is a better solution going to be? I'm not sure, but I am ready to have that, you know, that brainstorming session about the possibilities. Right. And and I think that that is an important thing to have. And I think that it's really important for uh, residents to to really believe like these are brainstorming sessions, right? These are things we're thinking about. These are things we want our government to be thinking about. We want to be thinking about big ideas. We want to be thinking about uh, how um, how best practices have changed, how um, community expectations have changed, how community patterns have changed, because we really we we need to move forward into the future and not be stuck wherever we were five, 10, 20, 50 years ago. Well, Hopi, uh, looks like that's all the time we have, unfortunately. I've got more questions for you, but looks like we're going to have to end it here. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. And uh, this is my first podcast interview of my life. So um, thank you for, uh, for doing this and for um, highlighting some local government stuff. Well, let's do this again after the new year, after you win your race and you're seated on the council. Okay. Maybe the tech will work better at that time. And I appreciate that you're making an assumption that I'm going to win this thing. I get really uncomfortable when people make that kind of assumption. And I think that goes back to the fact that I'm not a politician. And I think that um, I uh, I don't have the kind of faith in uh, the, the data and the numbers and... Um, taking big extrapolate big big leaps from small amounts of data and in this um in this context still make me kind of nervous so well i for one am confident that bloomington is going to get a great public servant in you yeah yeah well i appreciate that and um this has been an this has been an interesting uh interesting thing for me i never expected to be in this position so once again Hopi Stosberg, thank you for joining the Who's Left podcast. Great. Thank you. That was my interview with Hopi Stosberg, candidate for Bloomington City Council District 3 in this coming Tuesday's election. Once again, if you have not voted yet, please be sure to vote uh, on or before Election Day. Wherever you are, whatever you believe, whatever you think, just vote. Um... You know, we briefly talked about the things you take for granted. And uh, unfortunately, democracy is currently at stake and we cannot take it for granted. Your participation, your voting at the very least is necessary. Do not forget, um, not only municipal elections are going on this Tuesday. Uh, I am in Monroe County. We have uh, a referendum on funding for MCCSC schools. Do not forget to vote for that. You know, um, one of the most famous quotes from Mr. Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers, no relation, was, quote, When I was a boy, 
and I would see scary things in the news. My mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And, uh, you know, Hopi, today's guest, just she's one of those helpers. And uh, Bloomington will be lucky to have her on their city council. Again, please vote with that. This has been the Who's Left Podcast. I'm Scott Aaron Rogers. Love each other, Indiana. Indiana.